It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And we welcome you to the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, September 15th, 2016. Thank you for joining us on the program tonight. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, is here. Hello, Dad. Jacob, great to be with you tonight. Good to be with you as well. Thank you for joining us on the other end of the line. We want to hear from you tonight at 877-381-4567. Email questions at collegeview.com. And if you're listening to us live, on into the chat window at the bottom of your video screen there and chat with other listeners. Monty is behind the controls tonight. Monty, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Jacob. It's good to be here. Good to have you back, and I look forward to your comments as we go along tonight. It'll be the last time for a few weeks maybe that you can join us. So, uh, well, maybe for a month. So you better get them in while you can. <laughs> All right, good. Uh, looking forward to a good discussion tonight on an interesting topic. Jacob, we want to do something a, a little different in regards to, I guess, what we would refer to as the general subject of evidences. We've talked about evidences a lot in the past on the virtual Bible study, and you know, we we feel a a responsibility as Bible-believing people to offer proof or evidence for why we think the Bible is the inspired Word of God, that it is a unique book among all books that has ever been written, that it is given verbally, literally, plenary inspiration by God. Um, We believe every word of the Bible is there because God wanted it to be there. We're talking, of course, about the original languages of the Bible, not English. It wasn't written in English. But we believe we have accurate, reliable translations into English. We just we just have a deep, abiding respect for the Bible as the Word of God. And we, we often study evidences, proofs. We try to give uh, reasons why we have that faith. Uh, we've done that plenty of times on the virtual Bible study. We want to do something a little different tonight, and I'm not sure I made my point clear by virtue of some of the email responses we've got, and that's fine. But let me explain what I mean. In in our update, to our update list earlier today, uh, and by the way, if you're not on that list, get on that list by sending us an email to questions at collegeview.com. Just say, add me to the list in your subject line. We will do that, and you'll get our updates each week on Thursday telling what the program is going to be about. In our update today, I said, those of us who believe the Bible feel we have a responsibility to answer questions, explain our faith, and we make an honest effort to do that. We think that verses like 1 Peter 3, verse 15, be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We feel we're obligated, that we're actually commanded to be ready to explain right. our faith. Right. And and we take that responsibility seriously, and we try to do that. Um we think the evidence is compelling that, that there is a God in heaven, that he created all the physical universe that we see and know, uh, that the Bible is his inspired word, that Jesus Christ is his only begotten son, the resurrect, resurrected Savior of the world. We believe the evidence is is compelling. We can defend our faith, we believe. We believe we can defend our faith. We believe we're supposed to. Right. Um, but we want to look at it from a different standpoint tonight. 
I went on to say in our update, what about unbelievers? Shouldn't they be held accountable for their unbelief? Uh, shouldn't they be required to offer explanations as to why they reject the Bible? And that's the way we want to pose our study tonight. We don't really want to re-engage in a study of of positive evidences, although we've done that plenty of times. We'll do that again, no doubt about it. But we want to go about this a little differently because we think that we can throw some questions at a, a person who does not believe the Bible. We're talking about the Bible itself, obviously. Uh, we believe we can throw some questions at them that they, I think they have trouble answering. Yeah, and the term unbeliever is somewhat of a misnomer because unbelief is actually a belief. It requires faith to not believe in God. You're believing in something else, and you need to have faith that, or you need to be able to defend that faith. Yeah. I would almost also put in the category of an unbeliever a person who doesn't accept what we were just saying about the Bible, you know, that it is literally, verbally, plenary, uh, inspired of God, every word there because God wants... You know, there are a lot of people who claim, oh, yeah, I believe the Bible, and they just believe it's sort of a, a, a nice book of general moral principles, but if you tried to pin them down on a word-for-word argumentation, they would say, ah, no, I don't think it's, I don't think it's literally inspired like that. I would put those people in the category of, of, of an unbeliever because they don't really believe what the Bible claims for itself. Right. right. So, But we want to throw some questions out, and that's what we, we suggested. We suggested a series of six questions that we'd like to pose to people who don't believe the Bible. How would you explain these things? So, again, I don't know that that my update was perfectly clear or that everyone understood where I was coming from. We'll try to explain it as as we go along, try to illustrate what we mean. Okay. We've, got, we've got some responses, and, and they're good responses, but they may not be exactly in the, in in line with the train of thought I had in mind That's when okay. I suggested the program. And maybe we have some more questions that some folks would like to submit in the chat room tonight. Some questions you think uh, unbelievers need to be able to answer. We look forward to hearing from you in the chat room tonight uh, with those suggestions. All right, let's start out. Let's start out. I suggested how, if you're if you don't believe the Bible, or if a person does not believe the Bible, how would they explain the Bible's survival throughout all the centuries? Uh, now, I want to make a point. Uh, I think these first couple of observations that we've got don't necessarily prove that the Bible is the Word of God. They're just questions that I'd like to ask and say, you got an explanation for this? And this is one of them. I don't know that this necessarily proves that anything about the Bible in particular, but it is it is an, a, a question that makes you scratch your head at least. The Bible is really a really old, old book. Right. Uh, the oldest parts of the Bible were written about 3,500 years ago. The newest parts of the Bible were written about 2,000 years ago. And so when you pick up a Bible, you're holding an ancient document, really, really old. Now, what's we go on to explain that when these things were originally written, uh, they were they wouldn't have been they wouldn't have been in a neatly bound book like we have today. Uh, these documents would have originally been written on clay tablets, uh, on on uh, specially prepared animal skins, on on papyrus, very crude forms of paper, not at all like what we have today. And so, even the materials upon which these writings were originally recorded were very delicate and hard to preserve, and yet it was preserved. Yeah. Uh, furthermore, there were several 
really diligent efforts made throughout the course of history to destroy the Bible, to destroy all of these writings. For instance, we know for a fact that in the year 303 A.D., the Roman Emperor Diocletian made a a decree that all Christian literature, all Bibles, should be completely destroyed. Now, yeah, think about it. You've got the full force of the Roman Empire uh, at disposal here. And the, the head guy, the emperor, says, let's get rid of them all. How come they didn't get rid of them all? How, how, how was it that the Bible survived? You know, other books of antiquity have been lost just through apathy or, you know, no one really paid attention and suddenly they were gone. We don't have them anymore. Here's the Bible that has survived when there were diligent efforts being made to destroy it. And, and all I'm asking here is, how, how is that so? I mean, does it, does it not cause any... Does, if you're an unbeliever in the Bible, does it not cause you to pause and think, wow, I don't know. Can't something to that. consider. It, it's unproven. It's not going to be a definitive uh, thing necessarily, but it's something to consider, something to put in the mix as you're trying to make up your mind. And it definitely would be something that you would need to be able to explain and uh, have some reason as to yeah. why it could exist. Yeah. Uh, Kent in Georgia writes and says it's obvious that the survival of the scriptures give evidence of God's providential protection. That's what we believe. And he references Matthew chapter 24, verse 35. Jesus said, uh, Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. We believe that. As Bible believers, we actually believe that God was preserving the Bible. That's our answer. Right. In other words, we've got an answer to this question. How did the Bible survive? We believe it survived because God was providentially protecting it. But that's not what we're talking about here tonight. What we're talking about tonight is how would, how would the, unbeliever explain its survival because it doesn't i'm just saying it doesn't really seem to make sense that this book of all books would have survived through all the all of the conditions it had to survive through and especially in regards to the the efforts to destroy it and it survived anyway just got a question You, you don't have to answer it but it should make you stop and think for a minute but as kent points out we we believe we have an explanation for that. Now you don't you don't believe that obviously if you're an unbeliever, but we have faith and confidence that God was providentially protecting His word as He said He would. All right, eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven. Questions at collegeview dot com. Kevin says it's a good question. The Bible is not stone or environmentally durable, yet it is ever everlasting. Yeah. So, so it's a question that needs to be answered. Again, maybe not a definitive. Hey, you got to believe because the Bible is around still. But it is something you need to be prepared to answer. Yeah, and it, it's it's it has survived against incredible odds that would have you would would have you would have typically thought would have put it away. Okay, uh, Monty, any thoughts on that? Well, that is a as we was talking earlier, that is a, a seems to me a great evidence that, or a good question to ask an unbeliever is how would you explain its survival? Because like you said, these people went to great effort to destroy it or suppress it or keep people from having it, but yet we still have it. And the evidence that we find from time to time shows that it's in an unaltered state and accurately preserved. It's not like it's been changed or edited and mixed up over the years, over the centuries, but it's been kept. And what we can prove is accurate copies from the originals. And so that's just that's a big question for someone to have to explain to us. If you're not going to believe it, okay, fine. I don't believe it, but explain this. Yeah. 
That, and that's really the, the you, you've got it. That's the approach that we're trying to use with this argumentation tonight. It's not our typical evidence study in which we're trying to offer positive proof. We're trying to challenge the unbeliever. You 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 should give us some answers too. We got an interesting email from our friend Chris in Atlanta. Uh, he says, years ago, I pondered if I was a believer just because my parents told me it was true. I decided to reboot and start from a belief that there is no God and then set out to prove if there was and if so, which, if any religion was true. This was dangerous as I really stopped believing. Praise be to God, I survived and my belief is stronger than ever before. With that said, my responses will be from an unbeliever's point of view. I read some I read dozens of books and hundreds of articles from atheists. In other words, I will play the devil's advocate in order to provoke discussion. I have responses for all the objections, but for the sake of time, I will not include those, as I'm sure you guys will have more than enough rebuttals. He goes, so on this first question, he's, he's speaking as, he's, he's offering an answer maybe as the unbeliever would offer an answer. How do you account for the Bible's survival through the centuries? He said, we only had eight fragments from the second century and none from the first. It was not until the ninth century when we started having multiple manuscripts. Now, I think maybe Chris is illustrating there what I think is a flawed understanding about the manuscript evidence. I think people who who haven't studied the 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 evidence, the manuscript evidence for the Bible, would argue, oh, well, you know, you got a few fragments. That's really not the case. There, there's, a, there's a lot more than that. We've, we've talked about that before. If you look in the, uh, if you look in the archives of the Virtual Bible Study, you'll see a program there on how we got the New Testament. Uh, and we gave some of those numbers. I got some of that here. Uh, we've got five, over 5,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Okay. Complete New Testaments dating to 340 A.D. Now, that's not the ninth century. No. And we've got fragments that date to 120 A.D. Okay. And so I think, and I think Chris knows this, I think he's just stating it as an unbeliever would state, sort of a really underestimating the manuscript evidence. That's what they would be inclined to do. 130 A.D., some of those uh, uh, would be with what, within 50 to 60 years of when they were originally penned? Exactly, exactly. All right, so we're talking, now let's put it in modern-day terms. We're talking something from the 60s here. Yeah. From 1960. If you had a copy of that date, you go, that's... Wow, that's pretty reliable. Yeah, if you had a, a, a magazine article that was written in 1960, and you had a copy of it today, would you have any doubt that it was legitimate? Yeah. No, you'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, I trust that. I accept that. And that's basically what we've got with the manuscripts. Yeah. And the test. Okay. But that's really the question is, how did it survive? When in that same immediate time period, there were people who were trying to destroy it. Yeah. That's, that's the question. Yeah, Chris goes on, these people would say, they would say something like this. He says, the amount of manuscripts doesn't matter. In a thousand years, scholars may discover a thousands, a thousand copies of Gone with the Wind manuscripts. But that does not make Gone with the Wind a historically true story. In, in other words, uh, he's saying that's how these unbelievers would say, well, so, so you got thousands. It still doesn't make it true. Yeah. Well, that's not really not what we're arguing here. We're not arguing whether the story told in those manuscripts is true. We're talking about the manuscripts themselves. How come we have so many? Why is it so well preserved? That's the only question we're asking right here. Yeah. 
Uh, now we can we'll talk in a minute it's, about archaeological confirmation of some of the facts that are recorded in the Bible, which is overwhelming. But for right now, all we're saying is to the unbeliever: Can you give us your explanation as to why this manuscript evidence of the Bible is so compelling and complete, overwhelming? There is no other book of antiquity yeah, so that's it. that even comes close to the it Bible. It is a definite anomaly when it comes to pre- preservation because we do not have the same preservation for other works. Exactly right. You need an answer. Yeah. Now, in the chat room, Kevin makes an interesting comment. He says, you're giving some latitude that the unbeliever would not give you for your faith. You said you don't need to answer but must consider. The unbeliever would not give you the same opportunity. I agree. You you would be and are required to provide plausible answer for your faith. Therefore, uh, their questions must have the same gravity to provide an answer for the unbeliever. So uh, they... To, to defend what we've yeah, said so is their Kevin's faith. saying we're being a little more gracious than they typically are for us. Right. Yeah. All right. Good I agree. Point, I think you're right, Kevin. And then Philip in the chat room says, uh, there's a book entitled Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He can't remember the Josh author. McDowell. And Josh a sequel McDowell. to it. Yeah. Uh, goes into more the, evidence that demands a verdict by Josh <laughs> good McDowell. Good title yeah. for... Yeah. Uh, goes into the manuscripts of the scriptures, uh, such as Dead Sea Scrolls and others, uh, that there is more manuscript evidence for the Bible than other ancient, ancient books, such as Plato's and Socrates and uh, as the author of the book suggested, is still around suggesting divine authorship. Yeah, thank you, Philip, I, for that. I think you're right, Philip. And those, those are a couple of really good books to have in your library if, you're, if you don't have them. Uh, evidence that demands a verdict and more evidence that demands a verdict by Josh McDowell. We're going to take a break. When we get back, we'll take your thoughts as we continue the discussion asking questions that unbelievers must be prepared to answer. Get us your thoughts. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible Study will continue right after this. Don't touch that mouse. The virtual Bible study will be back right after this. Hi, my name is Mike Smith, and I'm a member of the College of Church of Christ on Hampshire Pike. Let me ask you some questions. Do you remember when churches insisted on Bible authority for everything they did? Can you recall when church members always expected they thus saith the Lord? Can you remember when the church was well known for its book, chapter, and verse style of teaching and preaching? Are you upset because the church you're attending doesn't always, doesn't always approach things this way anymore? Does it concern you that elders and preachers don't seem to care about Bible authority at all? We're still trying to do everything according to the New Testament pattern. If you're looking for a church like the one you remember from the past, please visit us soon at the College of Church of Christ this Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Here's some quotes worth pondering. The first step to wisdom is silence. The second is listening. Most of us know how to say nothing, but few of us know when. Language is the expression of thought. Every time you speak, your mind is on parade. A Christian shows what he is by what he does with what he has. A great man is always willing to be little. Man, wish I'd said that. Use your internet connection for something good. Listen to the virtual Bible study every week. Now, back to the program. Back on the program tonight, asking questions that unbelievers must answer. You know, unbelief uh, is a belief. For instance... You know, there's a lot of fight, and I, I understand maybe the, the the number of folks is growing. People that say we never walked on the moon, never landed on the moon. You know, if I was going to make that claim, the astronauts never went to the moon. I, you'd expect me to be able to answer some of or defend my position, right? Provide some evidence, some proof. Uh, how are you going to explain the pictures? Yeah. How are you going to explain the artifacts they brought back? Yeah. Uh, or the uh, the samples they brought back. How are you going to explain these things? I can't just say, I don't believe. 
I need to provide some answers. Same is true for our belief in uh, God yeah, and the well, Bible. I think you're right. The atheist does. He has a system of faith. It's right. not. It's not the faith of the Bible, but he has to have a system of faith. In a longer uh, uh, email message uh, from Aaron uh, that we'll comment about in a minute, but at the end of it, he says, "I'd like to ask, how did something come from nothing, and how did it turn into people?" That's you know that's what the atheist has to believe. He has to believe that there's a naturalistic explanation for everything that we see and know in the physical universe. But he has to believe that that happened by by virtue of a process that is not discoverable. We have never discovered how that happened, how right. something came from nothing, and then that something that came from nothing spontaneously generated into a living life form. And we can't do it. We can't replicate it. We have no evidence of it. And so he believes in that, but he can't explain it, and he can't demonstrate it. And so, you know, this is a point that we've, I think all Christians have, have, have sort of felt frustrated about. Those folks would cast off on us as, as taking a foolish, blind leap of faith. We don't think we have taken a blind leap, but we certainly are people of faith. We believe. We didn't see it, but we believe it. But we think there's evidence to support that all these things actually happen. But but the frustrating part of it is the the atheist typically acts pretty superior. That they that they that they hold the high ground intellectually, and the fact of the matter is they really don't. Yeah. And that that is kind of a off putting sort of a situation. Okay. All right. In the chat room, guest 5923 says the argument that the Bible has survived doesn't work because the Koran has survived. The Koran hasn't survived nearly as long as the Bible has. About 500 years less. Well, way more less than that. The, the, uh, the, the Koran, we're talking about a document that's come around about 600 A.D. Right. So it's only, what, a thousand and 1,400 years old max. Probably. Right. Uh, we're talking about a Bible that's 3,500 oh, years. Oh, you're talking about the Old Testament. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yes. I was thinking yeah. New Testament. Right. Yes. Cer- certainly. Significant differences there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, there are other old books around, but there aren't, there aren't any as old as the Bible that have been sustained as thoroughly and as, as, in, with as much positive demonstrated proof in manuscript as the Bible. That's yeah. all we're asking. Right. Yeah. Again. Maybe not the definitive answer or the definitive proof, but something. If you're going to say I don't believe, you got to have some proof. Yeah, exactly. As to why you okay. think you can explain that away. Go ahead. Let's go quickly. Let's go. The, the second argument is another one like the first one that doesn't necessarily prove the Bible is so, but it's something to make you think and kind of scratch your head and say, I wonder why. Why is the Bible so overwhelmingly popular in the world? Yes. Uh, uh, again, this is—you don't even have to open your Bible to, to c- contemplate this question. But the Bible has been translated into over seventeen hundred different languages. One thousand seven hundred. Yeah. Every year, the Bible is on bestseller lists. Mm-hmm. It, it, I mean, continually, every year, year after year, the Bible's on bestseller lists. The Bible is known worldwide. Uh, references to the Bible are found in all great art and literature. How has the Bible been a book of such powerful influence in the history of mankind? Just, just asking, just asking. You know, lots of books have been written. There's not any book that's ever been written that has been as thoroughly influential in the history of mankind as the Bible has been, and still is. And we're just asking, 
Well, how would you explain that if you don't believe the Bible is a special book? We're saying we believe it's true because the Bible is a very special book from God, a unique book among all books. You don't believe that. So how do you account for its enduring popularity and its influence in the world? Again, it's just a factor you need to put into the equation here as you try to determine, oh, yeah, I don't believe. Well, explain that. Uh, how do you how do you how do you answer that uh, question? Chris said, "I imagine unbelievers will try to blame it on family tradition, superstition, maybe even the size of the Catholic Church." Uh, in other words, he's saying the Catholic Church uh, grew and became powerful in and of itself, and therefore it maintained the popularity of the Bible. But the Catholic Church didn't become a powerful influence until several hundred years after the first century. Right. It, it, it certainly didn't. It certainly wasn't that which kept the Old Testament alive up until those times. I mean, the, the New Testament had been around for about two thousand years. Uh, the Old Testament had been around for about two thousand years before the Catholic Church came to power. The New Testament had been around for several hundred years before the Catholic Church came into dominant power. I don't think the Catholic Church is the answer. I don't think family tradition is the answer. I mean, if you think so, if if the unbeliever would think so, then, you know, okay, if you want to rest your confidence in that, but I, it doesn't make sense to me. If the unbeliever believes that, they're not a good student of history because until recently, at least, the Catholic Church went to a great deal of trouble to suppress the Bible. Uh, people that made early translations of it, they put them to death. Good point. Uh, the people that, when they invented the printing press, and, and was printing Bibles they on it, they known. came in and destroyed that because they didn't want everybody counted, having a copy. Yeah, those people were counted as heretics for doing that. Yeah. You're exactly right. Yeah, so, so historically speaking, no, you can't accredit the, the Catholic Church for that. They were some of those that were in opposition to the preserving of it to yeah. the extent Excellent that we point. had it. Excellent point. All right, so the first couple of points that we've tried to make, don't I, I, I would not offer them as proof positive that the Bible is the book from God. They're just questions to ask and, you know, Something to think about, and for the person who doesn't believe the Bible, I think they're questions that ought to give you some pause at least, right? Yeah, right. All right, now let's move into something that I think is a a positive evidence of, of that they that they need to try to explain if they can, and that is the freedom from mistakes. Now, in the, in our email from Aaron, uh, and Aaron's good to hear from you, and he goes into he goes into the question of no no contradictions in the Bible, yeah. which really it wasn't exactly what I had in mind. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. I had in mind these kind of things. The Bible, how how is it so that the Bible is free from the superstitions and prejudices that were common in the day in which it was written? Right. Uh, for instance, I'll give you a couple for instances. Moses was trained... In Egypt, he he received his education. He would have received the best education available in Egypt in the day that he lived there because he was raised as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, right? Right. So in science class, when Moses was in high school. Yeah, yeah right. Okay. okay. If I'm you can th- picture yeah, I that. that. I got it. Was he wearing a fun- they wear funny hats in that? Probably. Okay. I, all Egyptians wear funny hats. Okay. All right. uh, but uh, in, what would they have taught Moses? In other words, what what would have been his training? Yeah. Well, in in the day that Moses lived in Egypt, the Egyptians believed. This sounds crazy to us, but they believed that the world hatched from a flying egg and that men came to be 
because little white worms crawled up out of the Nile River and hatched into men. Mm-hmm. That sounds like that just sounds so stupid to us. But that's actually what they believed back then. And their and their historical documents would verify that. So here's Moses. Now, Moses is going to be the author of the first five books of the Old Testament. Right. That's significant because that's going to tell us about the creation. Yeah. And he's going to he's going to write about where we came from. Right. Did he write about the world hatching from a flying egg? Did he write about little worms crawling out of the Nile River and sprouting into men? He didn't write any of that. Instead, he wrote a, a, a creation story that still stands the test of time. Yeah. That even though now we have come along scientifically and technologically to understand many things that would not have been known in that day, his story still works. Yeah. The account that he gave, how do you explain that? How do you explain that his writings were not infected with the superstitions of the time in which they were written. That's my question. I don't think there's a good answer to that. Yeah, right. We have to have an answer for that. Uh, if you're going to say, oh, it's not true, then how do you explain the fact that these misconceptions of the day did not find their way into the Scriptures? And that's just a limited example. We could go on and on of examples of things that were common beliefs in the day that the, the Scriptures were written. Those mistakes, those Things we know are wrong never made their way in to the scripture. Well, we could talk about a lot of other things, like you know, the world is flat. Yeah. Well, how come the Bible didn't say the world is flat? Right. You know, or if you go out there far enough, you fall off the edge. You know. Right. How how come the Bible doesn't talk about the earth being suspended or held in place by some physical structure? Uh, a strong man standing yeah. on a turtle. Oh yeah. Yeah. Or on the back of elephants or yeah. something. Or because, maybe elephant on the turtle. Yeah. Uh, uh, people did offer such explanations in that time frame, yeah. but the Bible didn't talk that way. How was that stuff kept out? Yeah. Uh, that's uh, that's the kind of thing that I'm saying here. How how come it's free from those kinds of mistakes that would normally be there? All right, eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven. Questions at collegeu.com. When we come back, we'll talk some more about these things that are missing from the scriptures that we would expect to find. Some of the mistakes and contradictions that we'd expect to find. But we need to get a break and get this week's bullet point, and we'll hopefully get your comments during that break. Have a question? Have a comment? Send it in now. Questions at collegeview.com, chat room, or on the phone, 877-381-4567. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible Study will continue right after this. You won't want to miss what we talk about next. The discussion continues right after these important messages. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. A fundraising letter from a local hospital said, quote, Miracles at this place are a part of everyday life. Miracles that come from technology and miracles that come from human caring. I've seen them happen, unquote. This is an excellent example of the inaccurate use of the word miracle in modern usage. What this man is describing is a wonderful thing. It's great to see a sick person recover. It's thrilling to view the fruits of recent technological advances in medical care. We are seeing things that folks only a few years ago never imagined. Open heart procedures, organ transplants, laser surgery, and a host of other new medical methodologies have been perfected in rapid succession. It is truly amazing, but it's not a miracle. You see, by definition, and in accordance with accurate biblical usage, a miracle is, by definition, an effect in the physical world which surpasses all known human or natural power. It is supernatural. So when a doctor uses a sophisticated new medical device to affect the cure of a seriously ill patient, there's no miracle involved. While the technology may be new and very advanced, it's still a procedure that is known and understood by men. It is an action that is in accord with natural law. It is not supernatural. 
Therefore, it is not a miracle. Miracles are things like walking on the water, turning water into wine, raising a man who had been dead for four days, and so forth. These things defy a natural explanation. They are truly supernatural. The Bible records many instances of true miracles, but it also tells us that no miracles are taking place in the world today. Read 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 13. No, there are no miracles at that hospital or any place else for that matter. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. I'm Arthur Haynes from Kaleoka, Tennessee, and one of my greatest highlights of the week is to listen to the virtual Bible study. A streaming Bible study. Why didn't I think of that? Now back to the guys. We're back on the program tonight, reminding you this program is brought to you by the College U Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Find out more about us by visiting our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com. If you've never been there, check it out. Lots of information for you. And uh, if you've never contacted us to let, you, let us know you're out there or to submit a question or a suggestion, questions at collegeview.com is the email address to use. We look forward to hearing from you on the program. And uh, if you want a bumper sticker, there's still a few of those left. You can help us uh, spread the word about the program, get more folks listening so we have more discussion. Send us uh, your snail mail address to questions at collegeview.com, and we can get you one of those bumper stickers free of charge. Uh, my Gmail is not working tonight, so if anybody has sent a, a Gmail or a, a, an uh, email to our Gmail address. Well, they don't know well, that. Well, they don't know they it, don't know but, but you're they, not getting it. I'm not getting We field all of our incoming email, which is sent to collegeview.com, questions at collegeview.com, but it comes in our Gmail inbox, and Gmail is not working right now. Not so. working. Well, we'll work on that okay. and see what we so can So if you send us an email, I'm sorry, I'm not getting it right now. Okay. All right. Um, and uh, we're talking tonight about questions unbelievers must answer. You know, I'm hearing a lot about uh, young people who are saying, ah, I don't believe anymore. It seems to be, I don't know, but I'm sure it's happened throughout time, but it seems like maybe a growing trend. Uh, Young people say, oh, well, I think there I are a lot of believe. bad influences. Lots out of there. bad influences, you know, and especially uh, in, in in secular schools, in uh, the media, the media. There's a lot of pressures that are trying to force kids to not believe. Yeah, uh, and so I think we need to, as as parents, as as older Christians, we need to see this as a big challenge and be really seriously working to shore up the faith of our young people. And those young people are going to say, I just don't believe anymore. Well, let's be intellectually honest here, and let's uh, defend that unbelief. It yeah. is a position that must be defended, and here's some questions you need to answer, and you yeah. need to, be, uh, you need to yeah. be able to explain away. Yeah. Okay. All right, so we were talking about the Bible's freedom from mistakes, and I was, the main thing, I, uh, Aaron's got, Aaron goes into some uh lengthy detail again thanks aaron for your email he goes into some detail i'm not going to deal with all of that tonight we might do it in a a future time Uh, talking about some specific uh, accused contradictions in the bible uh we believe they can be explained away but as he goes as he explains in his email the unbeliever might not think that our explanation explains away the contradiction you know, uh, uh, we've referenced this a couple times recently. John W. Haley wrote a book, Alleged Discrepancies of the Bible, in which he dealt with hundreds, literally hundreds of different accused or alleged contradictions of the Bible. He offers he offers a feasible explanation to resolve all of those contradictions. And as we've often pointed out, if you're faced with a potential contradiction in the Bible, all you need is one feasible explanation that resolves that contradiction and and therefore it doesn't stand. It's not just in the Bible. We do this in a court of law. You know, yeah, if you're exactly. on trial yeah, for yeah, murder yeah. and say, well, you know, I've got here's my alibi, and if it uh, is feasible, then there's your alibi. Yeah. You got it. Yeah, yeah. 
but but in regards to the the kind of things I was talking about when I said it's freedom from mistakes, freedom from those superstitions of the day in which it was written. Another thing that I think is interesting is how, uh, the Bible doesn't contain any cover-ups. Uh, you know, we're in the middle of a, a hotly contested political season, and politicians are working feverishly to keep covered up any bad press that might come out yeah. about them. You know, got to keep it covered it. up. But, you know, in the Bible, there aren't any cover-ups. The, the, some of the greatest heroes of the Bible... Some of the people that we admire most in the Bible, they're, all their dirt is there on on display. King David and the horrible episode with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. If men just wrote this book, why would they write that about one of the greatest heroes of the Bible? Yeah, who's going to be pivotal in the whole story. That's not the way men would have written the story. Yeah. The Apostle Peter, well, you know, one of the great, initial preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we see him in his weakest moments swearing and denying that he even knows Jesus. Why would you put that in there? I want people to look up to Peter. Uh, but 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 instead, we're told about his great weakness. I, I think those kind of things point to the fact this is not a normal book. This is not the kind of book that men would write. Yes. Free from errors, free from mistakes, Free from uh, those uh, cover-ups. You know, you mentioned the presidential election. I was thinking that along those lines with this idea of free of contradictions. How many? You don't have to pay much attention to the election process to know there's contradictions. They're contradicting themselves all the time. All over the place. Yeah. yeah and exactly. that, that, and, but yet the, the scriptures are free from those contradictions. And this is one person in the election who can't, who, who can't avoid contradictions. But we got the writers spanned over a period of time of 1500 years about 40 different writers and when you and they didn't know each other they didn't collaborate and yet when you put the writings all together there are no contradictions how do you explain that yeah and as aaron said you know you can throw up a handful of those contradictions that Maybe the unbeliever wouldn't be fully satisfied with our explanation. I, I'm, I'm going to stand on the ground. I think we've got a feasible explanation for any alleged contradiction in the Bible. I would grant, like Aaron mentioned in his email, that maybe the unbeliever is not going to be over, oh, you know, he's not going to be com- convinced by every one of our explanations. I think most of them, I, I think the vast majority of them are, are easily answered. There are a few sticky ones. I'm not denying that. Uh, and, and as Aaron says, when we come by from a position, see if I can pick this out of his longer email, he said, by faith I accept that these things are not errors, but without faith I cannot disprove the hypothesis that there is an error. Uh, I, I understand that. I think that's, I think that's a fair statement. Uh, but when you put the evidence in a balanced scale, I mean, any of these sticky questions of potential contradictions are so infinitesimal compared to the overwhelming abundance of evidence of the of the harmony of the scriptures uh, that's the question we're asking all right 877-381-4567 questions at collegeview.com philip in the chat room peter stated in his second epistle we do not follow cunningly devised fables but they were eyewitnesses to the majesty of Christ, Second Peter one verses sixteen and seventeen. And certainly, when we look at the style of the of the of the Bible, 
it doesn't follow that uh, style of something like a fable uh, that we uh, would see so many of these uh, uh, errors and contradictions. In. Yeah. All right, let's move quickly Thank you, on. Philip, for that. Let's move quickly on. Another one of the questions we again, these are questions we would like the unbeliever to answer for us. We've got answers. We try to give answers, but how about you giving us an answer? If you don't believe the Bible is the literally true, verbally inspired Word of God, how do you, how do you explain just the uh, in, the increasing mountain of evidence that is supplied by archaeological discoveries? Obviously, what we're talking about here is there's people over there in the areas, in the geographical areas where the Bible story took place. Right. And they're digging all the time. They're, they're, they're digging and unearthing stuff. They're finding artifacts. They're discovering information about what happened there by way of what was left after it happened. Yep. You know, so we understand what archaeology is. Yeah, right. right. Okay. Let me give you a couple quotes. Time magazine wrote, The Bible is often surprisingly accurate in historical particulars, more so than earlier generations of scholars ever suspected. In other words, the more they find, there be even people who, who weren't really trusting the Bible before are saying, Man, you know, the Bible's really accurate based upon what we're digging up. Accurate to the historical particulars that it describes. Um U.S. News and World Report said a wave of archaeological discoveries is altering old ideas about the roots of Christianity and Judaism and affirming that the Bible is more historically accurate than many scholars thought. Uh, and so, again, what we're saying is that people there who were not even necessarily believers are saying, I got a, I got a grant that archaeology is bearing out that a lot of these things are true. You know, if this was just made up, you would expect the archaeological errors to just be rampant in the scriptures, and yet we haven't found one. Yeah. Within just the last recent time, I, this, I think this dates back into the early 90s, there was some evidence published in biblical archaeological, I can't even say it with a tangling behind, biblical archaeological review. Uh, a lot of L's in there. Yeah. Uh, they published some information about evidence that had been unearthed at the ancient site of the city of Jericho. Now, we know the story of Jericho told in the Bible, in the book, in the book of Joshua. Joshua and the children of Israel, as they are invading the promised land, the first city they come to is Jericho. And we remember how they conquered Jericho by marching around the city once each day for six days, seven times on the seventh day, shouting, Blowing the trumpets, the walls fell down. The city was conquered quickly without a prolonged siege and without a great battle. Well, in in fact, my date on these notes does actually say 1990 in Biblical Archaeological Review. Here was the evidence that they say has been found there at that site. They confirmed the city was strongly fortified. The attack occurred just after the spring harvest. They knew that by virtue of the of the stores of grain that were there. The inhabitants had no opportunity to flee. The siege was short. The walls were suddenly leveled. The city was not plundered, and the city was burned. Wow. You know, all of that fits with the Bible story about yeah. what happened at Jericho. Yeah. And that, that's that's pretty amazing. That's the kind of stuff we're talking about. Now, how do you... We believe... In fact, we... We would be really, our faith would be seriously shaken if archaeology found otherwise. Yeah. But 
this just confirms our faith in the Bible, but what does it do to the person who doesn't believe the Bible? Now, that, that's interesting, because the story of Jericho, that'd be one that people would point to and say, oh, that's got to be a fable. They walked around it, and the walls fell down? Yeah. But then you find archaeological evidence that supports that? You yeah. would think that'd be the first place you'd go to look to find that the Bible is all made up, but yet it archaeology proves that it's true. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right, uh, here we go. Uh, Kent uh, says, archaeology being a type of science or observable knowledge is a valid source of confirmation regarding the validity of the message of the Bible. Such proves us with independent confirmation of reality. So uh, thank you for that, Kent. And uh, this is a question that those who want to just say, hey, I don't believe. I'm not going to believe in what the scriptures teach. I don't believe there's a God. I don't believe the Bible is his word. You need to have an answer for this question, how do you explain the confirmation of the Bible by archaeological discovery? Here's what Chris says, how he would, he, here's how he would anticipate them to answer that. He said, many unbelievers will grant that archaeological discoveries do back up stories in the Bible, but they will try and explain it away, saying that even fictional books reference real places. Sometimes unbelievers state that since there have been no discoveries of a large mass of people wandering in the wilderness, then the Exodus story is not true. They claim that a group that size would have had that would have had to have left evidence. Well, again, I think that may be for those who want to make that argument an uninformed argument. I think that there is archaeological evidence to support it, and and just like we said, here's that that mass of people coming in to the promised land in the very first battle they fought at Jericho. Archaeology is confirming them now. Understand, we don't think that we have all the archaeological proof that's probably there. In that Sinai Peninsula where the children of Israel wandered for 40 years, I don't believe that all of the, all of the Sinai Peninsula has been dug up or that every potential archaeological discovery has been made uh, relative to that. What we're saying is that the archaeological discoveries that have been made confirm the Bible. In fact, scholars say they confirm the Bible without fail. In every instance and without exception, archaeological discoveries confirm what the Bible says. And that's the, that's the overwhelming thing. And that's, why, that's what we're asking the unbeliever to explain. We're not saying we got all the archaeology. In other words, uh, uh, when, when Jesus uh, was at the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus in Bethany, where's the archaeological proof of that? Oh, I don't have that. No one ever said we had that. What we are saying is that when archaeology uh, students and uh, when experts in archaeology dig up things, when they are able to say, hey, here's, here's a place. Here's a place in time. Here's, here's a situation. Here's something that happened in this place. It lines it, up. It, it lines up with the Bible. That's right? all we're, we're saying. We're not saying that everything archaeology would discover is even mentioned in the Bible. But when we're saying when they talk about the same times and places, they harmonize. They harmonize. We're going to get a break and go to the top of the hour. You know, what we're talking about here is faith. And, and God has designed it in such a way. I think some of the reason we don't have some of the things that you mentioned. We don't have archaeological evidence of everything. God has designed it. He wants people... He wants to save people who have faith. That's his design. And so you are going to have to have faith. He's not going to just hit you over the head with it. 
and uh, boom, you can't, you know, it doesn't require any faith. He says it's going to take faith in order to be pleasing to yeah. him. So, and, and so again, you, let's stress, and I see Aaron's gotten in the chat room. He said he was having trouble getting in the chat room, but I hope you've been able to hear the things we've been talking about, Aaron. But what we're saying here is we just we just want to throw these questions to the unbeliever. We accept that they have questions for us, and we try to answer them. But But we're trying to do something different here in saying, we accept our responsibility to answer. How about you given some answers? And what we're saying is just because you may say, I don't believe in the Bible, that doesn't solve your faith problem because you're going to have to have faith in the position you're adopting, yeah. and you need to be able to defend it. Yeah. We're going to go to the top of the hour. When we get back, we'll get your comments. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible Study will continue right after this. Enjoying the virtual Bible study? Email a friend during this break and tell them to join in on the discussion. There's more exciting Bible study after this commercial. Hello, everyone. I'm Monty, a member of the College View Church of Christ. So if you've been hearing all about the College View Church of Christ on the virtual Bible study and are interested in finding out more about the church, but you live hundreds of miles away from Columbia, Tennessee, and can't come and visit with the congregation to find out more, there's no reason to fear. After all, we live in the 21st century. Here's what you can do to find out more about the College View Church of Christ. First, why don't you check out our website while you're listening to the virtual Bible study? You'll find important information about the church there, including bulletin articles there on various subjects, and can even listen to sermons that have been presented at the College View Church in the past. Secondly, if you have questions about the church or about any Bible teaching, why don't you send an email to us and let us know how we can help. Send your questions to questions at collegeview.com. That address, once again, is questions at collegeview.com. We can even have a personal Bible study with you over email if you desire. And finally, if you would rather talk with someone in person, give us a call at 931-381-4567. That's 931-381-4567. You can call this number anytime. If you don't get an answer, leave a message and we'll call you back as soon as we can. We're glad you're listening to the virtual Bible study and hope to hear from you soon. We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. Perhaps the most striking trend in American religion in recent years has been the growing percentage of adults who do not identify with a religious group. And the vast majority of these religious nuns, as they are called, that is 78% of them, say they were raised as a member of a particular religion before shedding their religious identity in adulthood. Interestingly, only 3.1% of American adults identify themselves as atheist, with another 4% indicating they are agnostic. That information is via Pew Research Center. The Word of God says in James 2, beginning verse 14, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and hath not works? Can faith save him? Faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Quit checking your email. The commercials are over and the virtual Bible study is ready to roll. Take it away, guys. And we're back on the program tonight as we talk about questions unbelievers need to answer. They're taking a little roll call in the chat room tonight. We've got listeners uh, signing in from Charleston, West Virginia, Cincinnati, Ohio, Houston, Texas. I think I see some... Uh, Maybe a Van Buren, Arkansas, out there, and uh, we've Did got. Did you mention Hot Springs, Arkansas? Uh, well, he had a, he's from Hot Springs, yeah, but he's yeah. in Cincinnati tonight. Oh, oh, okay. Long distance, and um, yeah, may, and I saw a Cullioca, Tennessee, in there. So uh, certainly from far and wide tonight. And most of our listeners are not listening right now. They'll listen in the podcast version, uh, perhaps on iTunes or some other. And we'd podcast love it. if you're receiver. listening on uh, uh, in a podcast version. Send us an email to questions at College View. Tell us who you are and how you listen. And- yeah. Tell us who you are. Tell us where you are. We'd like to hear from you. Yeah. And uh, better yet, we'd like a question or a comment yeah. uh, or a suggestion. So please, uh, we want to hear from you. Questions at collegeview.com. We're going to have to move quickly. We're going to be out of time real quick. 
and uh, here's one of the questions I want to ask a person who doesn't believe in the Bible. Are you not convinced by predictive prophecy? You know, the, the now, to prophesy is just a foretelling. Uh, a, a prophet wouldn't necessarily be predicting always everything. Not everything a prophet did predicted future events. We understand that. But, uh, but prophets did. Part of their work often involved predicting future events. And when they did, it's really amazing when you study the prophecies that were made. We don't have time to go into great detail about that, but... Uh, we could do that, and maybe that'd make a neat study sometime on the Virtual Bible Study just to give a multitude of examples of predictive prophecies in the Bible. But go ahead. You were going to say something. Well, Kevin posed this question in the chat room. He says, how can an unbeliever refute prophecy hundreds of years between the telling and the revealing and fulfillment? So you're you're not presenting that that argument. You're just asking the unbeliever, how do you answer that? How do you explain the uh, prophecies that were given hundreds of years before they were fulfilled, and they were not generic, vague prophecies that could later be uh, interpreted or skewed in such a way to to make a, a random application yeah. or interpretation? They were very explicit, uh, and they were fulfilled. You know, um, some of them even called people by name hundreds yeah, of years in yeah, advance yeah. that this person's going to be a king and here's call him by name and here's what he's going to do. Yeah. Well, he does it. You know, you can't yeah, explain that otherwise. Yeah, one of the ones that you have in mind specifically was Isaiah, who named Cyrus king of Persia, mm-hmm. who would authorize the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and reestablish the temple worship in Jerusalem. Cyrus hadn't even been born yet, and the Persians weren't even an empire yet when Isaiah named. King Cyrus to be the one who did it, and he did it. And so, I mean, that's just an example. I had another one I was going to point out. We don't really have time to develop the argument, but for those who are interested, there, there's a fellow named Peter Stoner who, in a book called Science Speaks, uh, did some mathematical probability analysis uh, about someone fulfilling the prophecies made about Jesus. Now, again, we don't have time to go into great detail, and I think we probably have talked about this on the Virtual Bible Study before, but there are over 300 prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. This man, Peter Stoner, in the book Science Speaks, he picked out eight of those prophecies. Uh, I had a list here. Uh, Let me see. Uh, Born at Bethlehem, preceded by a messenger, would enter Jerusalem on a donkey, uh, sold, uh, betrayed by a friend, sold for 30 pieces of silver, that money thrown down in the temple and used to buy a potter's field, silent before his accusers, crucified with thieves. Anyway, he took those eight, and those are all eight specific prophecies about Jesus, and he tried to calculate what's the chances that a person could come along and just accidentally fulfill those eight out of 300. He just took those eight. For instance, in the course of all history, a very insignificant fractional minority of people have ever been born in Bethlehem. Yeah. Even to this day, Bethlehem is just a tiny village. Right. And so when you think of all mankind, how many of all who've ever been born were born in Bethlehem? Well, that already then that increases, that, that, that makes the odds really pretty against the possibility of any one man accidentally being that Messiah because he, he wasn't even born in the right place. But that's just one prophecy. That's just one. 
So he, he took those eight prophecies, and I, I don't know how, and, and you could quibble about his mathematical methodologies, I'm sure, but he's just saying the odds are astronomically small that any one man could have just by chance fulfilled those eight prophecies. In fact, he said it was one in 10 to the 17th power. Yeah. That's a bunch Which, of zeros. That's a whole lot of zeros. That's more zeros than the federal government even deals with when they talk about national debt. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's just a huge, huge. And he's just saying, basically saying. Let's it was, say he was off by several factors of 10. He's still. Yeah. It, it just wouldn't happen. It just yeah. couldn't happen by chance or by accident. Yeah. All right. Uh, Kevin says uh, Cyrus being named as a strong prophecy that was fulfilled amazing. And uh, Kent says uh, the concept of predictive prophecy is one of the strongest arguments for biblical inspiration. One can never overturn a fulfilled prophecy. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, real quickly, as we r- run the program out here, the last question I had to ask was why would people die? to preserve the Bible for us. Uh, real quick, before we leave prophecy, uh, Kent in Georgia says, the concept of predictive prophecy is one of the strongest arguments for biblical inspiration. One can never overturn a fulfilled prophecy. Do you read that? I already? just read oh, that. Oh, you already read that. I yeah. thought that. Uh, that it I read sounded it. familiar, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, it sounded familiar when I read it. Yeah. Uh, uh, and did you read Chris's argument from the unbeliever? He no. said... Uh, Concerning predictive prophecy, they will either deny the time attributed to the authorship and say that later writers made up the prophecy, or they will claim that the New Testament writers knew about the prophecies and, and concocted a story to fulfill them. And I think he's right. I think I think Chris is right. That's how they try to come about that. But they can't. Uh, for instance, those prophecies of Isaiah, we know. We have manuscript evidence that proves to us that those writings were in existence before Jesus came along and fulfilled the prophecies that Isaiah made. For instance, Isaiah 53 is the most beautiful passage that describes the suffering Savior on the cross of Calvary. Right. And we know that that document was in existence before Jesus died on Calvary. All right. All right, we're uh, three minutes left, and uh, we're getting close to the end here. And the only question we had remaining was, why would people die to preserve this Bible? Uh, you know, you know when you when you hold a Bible in your hand, uh, we kind of take it for granted. There's a lot we take for granted about the blessings that God bestows upon us. But one of the things we take for granted is this book in our hands. There are people, literally, who died so that we could have it in our hands. Right? Why would they do that? That's, right. that's just a question. Just asking a question. Kent right. says when people are willing to face physical death to preserve the Bible, this gives proof, proof that they have examined the evidence of the Bible's inspiration and have absolute knowledge that it is true. You know, the ones that uh, Chris was saying that they would might say were making up the story, those were the folks, some of the folks who had to die. Yeah. To why would you die for a made-up story? story? Yeah, why would you die for a made-up story? Yeah. Why would the apostles all become martyrs for Christ if they had not seen him resurrected? Because the fact of the matter is, when he was crucified, they all abandoned him. They were cowardly deserters, and later they were all willing to lay down their lives for the cause. Why would they do that? Uh, Now, we understand that there are other religions that people have been willing to be martyrs for. We understand that. But not not in the significant numbers that I think the Bible has. All right. Uh, Chris says, I've heard a couple of explanations for this. The first is they will claim that 
terrorists die for their beliefs today. We understand that. The second is they will claim that there's no real evidence outside of the Bible that the apostles even existed. I don't believe that. I think that, again, I think that would be an uneducated argument from the opponents of the Bible. We have too much historical evidence of, of that tells, describes the death of the apostles that is not recorded in the Bible. So they are recorded in history. Jesus has been mentioned in writings of Josephus, and all these things were recorded in history other than the Bible, yeah, with details have, that are not in the Bible. That's right. We've got secular historical ev- uh, confirmation of some of these details. Not all of them, understood, not all of them, but some. He says they'll go further and point out that we really don't know uh, how they died, if they even if they did exist. And again, I, I, I disagree with that. I think that would be an uninformed claim. On, but you know what? The people who reject the Bible are, it's been my experience that they're willing to spout arguments that they've heard others make that they've never really examined themselves. Right. Now, we got to be careful lest we do the same thing. Right. You know, uh, I, I think Chris mentioned in his email, he had to, he, he wanted to go back and de- decide if he really believed based upon his own examination, not just what his parents told him. And I think we all got to do that at some point. And we all got to be careful that we're not just parroting arguments that we've heard that we've never investigated for ourselves. We don't, we don't want to be guilty of that either. But I think these unbelievers often are guilty of that. All right. Um, uh, Philip asked, was not Tinsdale one such example in the 15th and 16th century? Yes. And, uh, of course, the apostles, he said, did. Um, and Aaron says, for people who think that the gospel writers made up a story to fit the prophecies, it's hard to explain how Christianity started and thrived in the center of an area of the area where Jesus lived and was observed. You can only tell a story to people who don't know better. Yeah. Uh, good point. I think there. that's exactly right. You know, you know, the growth of Christianity right in the place where Jesus lived and was crucified and was resurrected in the, and the reports of the resurrection generated in that spot. You know, if I was going to try to tell a tale about someone who came back from the dead and he didn't really. Yeah. I'd go to the other side of the world and try to tell that story. Yeah. So that people couldn't check up on me. Yeah. But the fact that it started right there is kind of interesting. Okay. And guess 5923 says, keep in mind unbelief is foolishness and foolishness cannot be explained. So asking an unbeliever to answer questions, it cannot be done. Well, we believe they can't do it in an accurate way. They can't give us satisfactory answers. And that's what we're asking on the program tonight or have been asking is how do you provide satisfactory answers to these important questions? If you're going to deny that the Bible is true, deny there is a God, how do you answer questions like these? Yeah. That's it. That's what we were about tonight. Got questions or comments about what we said, about some of the arguments that we posed? We'd love to hear from you. In fact, if you don't believe the Bible is true and you'd like to come on and explain why, we'd love for yeah, you to we come throw, on we, and answer we, these We questions. have an open-door policy here. We, we've we, talked we, with atheists before on the program, yeah. and uh, and it's been a constructive discussion. We'd like to hear yeah, from some you. Some of you have no doubt heard of Dan Barker, who's one of the better-known atheists in the United right. States. He's been on the program with us in the right. past. Right, he has, and yeah. uh, so we'd like to hear from you. Believe or don't believe, uh, maybe uh, we'd like to hear your thoughts. Uh, send us an email, questions at collegeu.com. Monty, thanks for being here. Thank you, Jacob. We'll miss you for enjoy. the next few weeks, but uh, look forward to you being back. And, uh, Dad, thank you for your time tonight. Thanks, Jacob. And thank you for joining us on the program tonight. We hope you make plans. We'll be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study his inspired word of the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. 
Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.